Hi! Whoa, that was loud. Welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. Today it's Friday, June 4th, 2021. Perhaps you can tell from my voice I'm feeling a little bit mellow today. So, it might be a mellow show until I read an article and then get really angry. But, we'll see what happens. Start off with some music as per usual. First heard the song called Radio Cure by Wilco, American Music by The Violent Femmes, and then Naturals Not In It by Gang of Four. We're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco, and we're on Ramatouche Ohlone land. And for more information, please go to weeklyrev.org, click on our land acknowledgement tab, and there you will find lots of information, including places to donate, maps, native news outlets to follow, and much more. Um, for the show today, we ugh, just, yeah, um, yeah, the, I'm just going to start reading things, and then we'll see where we go. There's uh, 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 If you haven't listened to the show before, uh, please uh, thank you for tuning in and try to make this as entertaining uh, as possible and recognizing that talking a lot about a lot of really difficult <sighs> things that are happening but also providing ways that folks can show up and a reminder that everyone can show up regardless of who you are, where you are, what's going on. There are ways that we can all uh, take action to make this world a little bit better. All right. So, oh, goodness gracious. Uh, I was like all so excited about uh, starting to talk, and now I'm like re looking at these headlines, and it's like, oof, this is a bit rough. So perhaps we'll, uh, oh, <laughs> we will, we'll start off here. And first thing I am seeing is uh, about the Great Highway in San Francisco. And that is, it was for cars before. Well, I think originally it was just for, you know, humans and stuff. And then cars got involved and ruined things. So uh, it was closed down for during the quarantine to provide people a place to walk and bike. Um, just a, a car-free space. One of the few <laughs> car-free spaces left. And so there has been a push to keep it that way. And also just to have it more accessible uh, for, for people. So there is an update on current use and pilot project development. And uh, there's information regarding an upcoming joint meeting of the Recreation and Park Commission and the SFMTA Board of Directors. The agenda for the meeting is next Thursday is now available. And they have a, a link that I'm clicking on right now. Wow, I'm feeling really mellow. Oh, this is really weird. So it's Thursday, June 10th at 1 p.m. There's a remote hearing via video and teleconferencing. You can watch it at uh, sfgovtv.org. Uh, it says, please note with uh, note the remote rem rah, remote access call numbers to join the meeting by phone, 415-655-0001, and then access code is 187-147-3320. This is a lot of info, so I'll also be providing links to this on our webpage at weeklyrep.org at the end of the day. So it's just a general calendar of what's involved. So if you are interested in helping support a car-free Great Highway, uh, please do check out this meeting. And you can also, uh, you can write an email to recpark.commission at sfgov.org and the MTA board at sfmta.com. Um, and th that those emails will go directly to the commissioners and board members. And it will also be part of the public legislative file for the matter. So, um, yeah, I sent an email out and it felt nice to do something as simple as, you know, sending an email being like, hey, listen, this would be great and helpful. You can also write a letter, put it in the mail to the Rec and Park Commission, 
and all this info I will share on our uh, web page. So again, I am all for more car-free spaces. Uh, I know they can try to make JFK free and uh, car-free in Golden Gate Park, and uh, hopefully continue to have some of the more safe streets. And it's I think just it's so cars are so dangerous. The drivers are dangerous. It's really and I think they're been in like an increase in traffic and accidents as well and I really wish that uh, more attention and funding could go to accessible public transit and uh, infrastructure and ensuring everyone can get where they need to go and not needing to either have a car or need a car um, to get there I think that would be great so that's putting that out there in the universe okay that's one <laughs> one thing down all right Next up, all right. This is uh, an email from Surge. I haven't quite looked through it just yet, but this is a victories to celebrate and action to take. And let's read a little bit here. This week, the Alabama-based Communities Not Prison Coalition, which Surge is a member of, claimed a historic win, while the private prison giant Core Civic suffered a historic loss. Many of you have participated in this victory through actions apps and sending petition letters to three to the three major financial backers who were forced by public pressure to back out of the deal to build three new mega prisons in the state of Alabama. As part of the coalition, Surge members in Alabama have worked strategically on outreach through canvassing and phone banking to contribute to the pressure to deny Alabama Governor Kay Ivey's plan, which would have exacerbated problems for incarcerated people, prison staff, and Alabama taxpayers. And next week, there's a push for more victories like this. And they have a, a June action zap on Thursday, June 10th at noon, noon p.m. Uh, Pacific time, 3 Eastern time. We will demand folks detained in Irwin Detention Center and Bristol County to be released, not transferred to another facility. We will stand in solidarity with indigenous land defenders leading opposition against the polluting, spewing, rights violating tar sands pipeline three. And we will contact Congress people to pass the HR 48 reparations bill. Two other victories that we have contributed to include a black-led multiracial campaign that many of you took part in in our recent actions app that has helped return the case against the police who murdered Dante Wright to the attorney general who prosecuted Derek Chauvin. And after many years of grassroots organizing, movement organizations like Project South, GLAHR, and Georgia Detention Watch celebrated a massive victory when ICE was notified that they will have to shut down Irwin Detention Center in Georgia. Hundreds of you made calls and sent emails during our September Action Zap series demanding that Irwin Detention Center be shut down after stories of rampant medical abuse and forced sterilization of people inside the facility surfaced. Months later, we are, and they use the, they use the word women, and I'm also, I just changed that to people just because uh, not everyone <sighs> is necessarily uh, identifies as a woman reproductive abilities. So I wanted just to shift that to say people. Uh, months later, we are celebrating this win alongside the organizations that led us to this victory. So again, Surge Action Hour Abolition and Zap. Learn to take action together to demand releases, not transfers for people in immigration detention. Take action for reparations bill HR 40 and in solidarity with land protectors against line three. So again, this is happening Thursday, June 10th at noon Pacific time. They have a link to register, bit.ly forward slash bit.ly forward slash actionzap610. And I'll also, I need to make a note to uh, 
share this on our page too. And if you're also looking for other things that are ongoing, take a look at our website, weeklyweb.org. I've been uh, compiling links to different articles and action items and events, as well as the interviews we've done on the show on our site, weeklyweb.org. And big thanks to Malia for helping out with um, helping update the site and just hope to provide a resource because uh, I, th I do believe that most people do want to live in a more just world. And uh, I'm speaking from my own experience. Sometimes I want to help, but I don't know what to do. Or I might have a limited amount of energy, like I want to do something, but I'm not sure what I feel capable of or able of in the moment. And that, you know, that shifts. Some days I feel like I've got more energy than others. Some days I feel more optimistic than others. And I think it's really helpful just to have a, a list of things that one can do. And just to, even a little bit. And it also, it's... I feel totally natural to feel depressed and anxious and angry in this world. And um, when we can take action, it helps decrease that and also helps make a difference. All right. Wow. Okay. Whew. Next up. Let's see here. Um, is an event that's coming up. We like events um, because that's also just, there's so many good things that are happening in the world. Okay. This is from the East Bay Meditation Center. I think also now that so many events are going online, it can be more accessible for people who might not be able to be there in person. So this is an online-only event. This is happening Wednesdays, June 9th, 16th, 23rd, and 30th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Pacific time. And this is Embodying Freedom, Somatics, Healing, and Justice. Closed captioning will be provided, and this is with Amanda Reem, Renee Rivera, who's been a guest on the show before, and Erica Lila. And... Um, yeah, there's also, oh, and there's another one here. Um, online only, Sundays, June 6th, 13th, 20th, and 27th, 1 to 3.30 p.m. Pacific time, Unpacking Whiteness, Exploring the Delusion of Race from a Buddhist Perspective. Closed captioning will be provided, and this is with Crystal Johnson, and it's a benefit for EBMC and Soto Zen Buddhist Association. And then uh, we've got some more events as well, and so I will post quite a few. So I will um, post a link to <laughs> I'll post a link to these uh, to the website for East Bay Meditation Center and their upcoming online classes um, over on our website. Quite a lot going on there. All right, and again, I don't mean to skip over anything, and it's uh, there's just there's so much, and I try to get to at least a little bit of everything to the best of my ability. Next. Up okay, we did that. Ooh, what's this? Let's see. Um, okay, this is from Media Alliance, who are big supporters of Media Radio. So thanks, Media Alliance, a great organization to support. Oh goodness. Okay, this is a uh, huh. private camera networks in the Castro. Boo. The gift of private camera networks. Will the Castro say no thanks? On June seventh at six p.m. The Business Improvement District of San Francisco's Castro neighborhood will consider whether they should reject a gift of. $695,000 network security camera system from tech entrepreneur Chris Larson. Ah, uh, boy. Uh, Larson's sponsored camera networks from vendor AVS have been provided to a number of San Francisco neighborhoods, including Japantown and the Union Square District. The Union Square camera network has was accessed last year by the San Francisco Police Department for real-time monitoring of the protests after George Floyd was killed by the Minneapolis Police Department. A lawsuit, has been a lawsuit has been filed by Black Lives Matter protesters. 
The motion on the June 7th agenda provides two options. Vote to continue working with the community and researching the issues related to installing a public safety camera program in the Castro CBD footprint, or vote no on moving forward with the implementation of the public safety camera program in the Castro CBD footprint, effectively ending the program. Tech entrepreneur Larson has been shopping his quote-unquote business improvement district model for private camera networks outside of San Francisco to other cities, including Portland and Seattle, as a public safety innovation. Hmm. Because I think if you want to talk about public safety, ensure everyone has housing and health care. That will really help uh, people feel safe if they if people have, you know, place to live, food, clean drinking water, medical care. Um, I'm just spitballing here, but I'm not a billionaire or a millionaire or an entrepreneur, so... But uh, if you have the funds, why not uh, just ensure that folks can get their basic needs met instead of uh, spying on people? Let me finish this paragraph. To the best of our knowledge, the Castro District uh, Distro BID would be the first BID to reject the gift of a Larson-funded camera network. Cool. Several community groups, including both LGBT Democratic clubs, the Harvey Milk Club and the Alice B. Toklas Club, the LGBTQ Cultural District, United to Save the Mission, and noted activist Tommy... Uh, Tommy Avioli Mecca have spoken out in opposition to the Larson camera network. Because this model is being shopped broadly throughout the region and beyond, the decision of the Castro BID to have an impact in the neighborhood and more widely uh, will have, excuse me, the Castro BID will have an impact in the neighborhood and more widely. You don't have to have a handy dandy email action for, well, excuse me, I'm going to slow down. I got really excited about this. We don't have a handy-dandy email action for you. Voting member emails are not available. But we want to ask you if you can call in Monday night and make a brief public comment. Okay, so again, Castro Community Benefit District Board of Directors meeting, Monday, June 7th, um, from 6 to 7.30 p.m. There's a Zoom meeting. They provide a link, and I will do my best to link this on our page as well. Here are some talking points from Castro Community Advocates. The Castro has historically been and has remained a neighborhood of sanctuary for people who feel unwelcome, different, and unsafe in their communities of origin. The neighborhood's environment of freedom and expression is integral to it. Cameras are not the only or even an effective route to improving public safety. Plus, it's like, you know, it's kind of like this kind of afterthought, too, not just for spying on people, but it's like, how does that prevent crime? Like, if that was, if cameras were going to prevent crime, then there wouldn't be any crime anymore because there's cameras pretty much almost everywhere, and people carry cameras on their phones. It seems to just, like, record things that happen. So it's like, oh, after the fact, this is what terrible thing that happened uh, instead of, you know, preventing the root of the problems or why they're happening in the first place. All right, let me finish this. Okay, cameras are not the only or even an effective route to improving public safety. The BID should consider community-based solutions, not just mass surveillance. The vendor ABS has significant national security connections and markets their products to entities like, ew, the NSA. Uh, we have concerns about a vendor with ties to the security state collecting and retaining centralized video records of all activities in the neighborhood. A networked camera system is different than individual dispersed security cameras. A centralized network system blankets the central shopping and gathering area. There is no reason for the BID to continue working with the community. Um, as word spreads, there is more opposition in the community to the camera network, not less. Not all neighborhoods are the same. What might seem acceptable in a downtown business district may not be acceptable for a neighborhood like the Castro, which is a cultural beacon. Thank you for considering giving us some of your precious time on Monday night to support community groups in the Castro. All right. So 
big thanks to Media Alliance, and uh, we'll provide uh, this info on our page, weeklyrev.org. It is 1228. All right, let me get to one more thing, Whew. and then we'll do another music break. Yay, music break. Okay, what is it? All right. Let's see if I read this last time. Um, another email. This is from May 1st. And it's just another reminder that you can go to a website called tracktranslegislation.com. And this is a site, uh, I'll read a little bit about this. Um, in 2021, state legislatures across the U.S. have proposed a record number of anti-transgender legislation. Some bills have already been signed into law, and several more devastating bills are progressing quickly. We urgently need your help keeping these discriminatory bills from becoming law by contacting lawmakers and expressing your opposition. Take action now and help us defend trans rights. Uh, urgent bills that anyone can act on. And uh, there's one in Florida, which is um, S1028, and that's the trans youth sports ban. There's Tennessee, HB 1182. And then they have a list by state as well. And they have different types of anti-trans legislation, which is awful. There's trans youth sports ban. There's preventing trans youth from health care. There's allowing misgendering. So it's all fucked up. Um, uh, not allowing folks to update birth certificates as well as public facilities restrictions. And, um, and you can also, there's like a bill logs here, which has updates. And the last update was like on May 11th. So I'm not sure um, if there have been um, other updates since then, but I uh, did want to provide this uh, as a resource, uh, tracktranslegislation.com. All right, that being said, I think it's time for some, uh, some music. I'm going to start off with a song called uh, Never Give Up, because that's how I'm feeling <laughs> right now. could really use uh, feelings about never giving up. All right, here we go. <laughs> Says you're wrong. 
and I suppose you've come down to help me move things along. And we lapped it up and we're wise enough to know how it goes to get me, honey. We're wise enough to know how it goes to get me, honey. Cause we know this feeling all a little too well. Listen, the distance between us. Wow. wow. 
take her, take that woman, there's one place she found, just run that mother out of town, make her get up, make her get up, get out. Welcome back to Weekly Review. That was James Brown with The Payback. Before that, we heard Long Shot by Catfish and the Bottle Man. Before that, Never Give Up by Eat My Fear. <sighs> All right, headphones are going back on. And let's get to some more, more news stories. Oh, wow. I am so mellow. It's, this is very unusual. All right. Next up, I'm going to take a look at a few links that I had pulled aside for today and uh first up oh this is not good all right uh so this comes out of the uk and there's been i mean transphobia there's been pretty uh, rampant uh in the last couple years just escalating so and this is from vic parsons and this came out on may 14th life-changing trans masculine penis surgery currently unavailable on nhs and i've heard of folks who are in between surgeries they can't um get revisions done, so I just imagine, I mean, it's just fucking awful. And so uh, this is from uh, pinknews.co.uk. Transmasculine bottom surgery is currently unavailable in the UK for NHS patients. The operation called phalloplasty is the surgical creation of an artificial penis that will be sought by some trans men and transmasculine people as part of their medical transition. Gender-affirming surgeries like bottom surgery are an internationally recognized treatment for alleviating the symptoms of gender dysphoria and are known to significantly improve quality of life and mental health of trans patients. Phalloplasty is deemed an elective surgery, which means operations were suspended during the COVID-19 pandemic as hospital resources were diverted to coronavirus patients. If not funded by the NHS, a phalloplasty is estimated to cost between 40,000 quid and 70,000 quid in the UK, or pounds, I should say. Uh, Health Secretary Matt Hancock announced on April 27th that elective surgeries could resume the, that following day due to the decline in coronavirus-related hospital admissions and deaths. But despite Hancock's announcement, the only UK provider of phalloplasty in London has not resumed operations as, and does not have a date for when bottom surgeries will restart. This is because St. Peter's, which is a 
Harley Street Center that does not own hospital facilities has not secured a contract by April 2021 with a hospital site from which its surgeons could carry out procedures. Make News understands that until the situation is resolved, NHS gender clinics have suspended patient referrals for transmasculine bottom surgery. In the meantime, the 32.9 million pound uh, NHS England contract for genital surgery, transmasculine, that St. Peter's won in 2019 has been pretendered, with the NHS now seeking uh, bids from other providers to carry out the surgery. Pink News understands that NHS commissioners are working urgently to secure a new provider so that transmasculine bottom surgeries can resume. St. Peter's won the 2019 contract against zero competition. It was the only provider that bid to provide trans NHS patients with phalloplasty. The contract St. Peter's won, which covered trans NHS patients in England, Scotland, and Wales, saw it promised to deliver phalloplasties until 2027. The 2019 bid won by St. Peter's to provide transmasculine bottom surgery was part of a seven, well, 107.1 million euro tender put out by the NHS for gender dysphoria surgical services. Three health clinics secured contracts to provide lower surgery for trans women and trans femmes on the NHS. Five contracts were given out for uh, masculinizing chest surgery and one for trans masculine bottom surgery. Because of the open tendering process that is underway, St. Peter's Andrology Center was unable to comment directly on the situation, but shared a May 13th statement that its three surgeons, Nim Christopher, David Ralph, and Philip Rubin, prepared to address concerns from worried patients. We understand that there is a good deal of speculation on social media about current contract negotiations and do understand the anxiety that this will be causing our patients, the statement says. It continues, it had been suggested to us that we would enhance our service by centralizing it on a single site and on and on exploring this option, it was clear that it would enable us to increase our surgical capacity as well as improving the patient experience with a more joined up service. Uh, this required renegotiation of existing hospital contracts, but regrettably, that process could not be concluded in time. NHS commissioners felt that this required them to reopen the procurement process for the provision of male genital surgery. Commissioners have, uh, these are all asterisks before these again. Commissioners have stated that they do not anticipate that the process will cause undue delays to resumption of operating following COVID. And what we have seen of the process supports that view. We share the belief that expanding the available providers of the service would be a fantastic outcome for patients. Even before COVID, a major problem was a shortage of operating capacity, but more choice for patients would be welcome for its own sake in any case. The first analysis of the long-term effect of hormone therapy and gender-affirming surgery on trans people's mental health was published in 2019 in a medical journal. That's so, but it's taken so long. Maybe if... Uh, Magnus uh, Hirschfeld's uh, library hadn't been burned down by the Nazis. There might be some things that were published before 2019 that we wouldn't have. Anyway, uh, and that's from the American Journal of Psychiatry. Uh, researchers at Yale University used 10 years of medical data and concluded that trans people who undergo gender-affirming surgery are significantly less likely to seek mental health treatment than trans people who don't access gender-affirming surgery. NHS England was contacted for comment. Okay, so again, this is from pinknews.co.uk, and we'll provide a link on our website for that. Okay, next up. And I'm going in sequential order, so this is not so much a um, 
order of importance, and it's also not, I mean, everything's connected, so. Oh, goodness. Oh, I also did want to, uh, that there was an update um, um, about the block the boat action that happened this morning in Oakland, um, early, early this morning. And so I wanted to um, share some information from AROC Bay Area, and that's A-R-O-C. You can follow them on Twitter at A-R-O-C Bay Area. And so the update from about an hour ago, um, block the boat update. We've declared victory for the morning shift. The terminal has been shut down and workers honored our picket. We need people at Middle Harbor Shoreline Park in Oakland at 4 p.m. for the next shift. And for details, please go to bit.ly forward slash btb access. And um, I'll also share this information um, on our website. So again, if you're available um, at 4 p.m. Pacific time, there's also was a Long Beach, California block the boat action as well. And I believe there are more around the country that are happening. Okay. And this was from the Zim, Z-I-M, which is a Israeli uh, shipping company. So, all right. So we'll share more info as it comes in. And uh, again, uh, you can follow AROC Bay Area, A-R-O-C Bay Area, for more information. All right. Next up. Okay, yeah, there's a lot. All right, let's see. Let's see. And it does do a number on me going through all this so quickly. So I usually, uh, after the show on Friday, it's usually my time to just kind of oof, take a breath. Because it is a lot. Um, I don't know what it's like to be on the listening side of this, and I imagine that's a lot. And I mean, perhaps that's one benefit to technology. You can listen to a little bit, press pause, listen a bit more later, and then uh, those music breaks come in, and they'd be really helpful. Another great event coming up. Uh, Sunday, June 13th, they're in, there's going to be an in-person outdoor reading at the Inner Sunset Flea Market featuring uh, Josiah Luis Alderete. Um, the, okay, these are other, I'm sorry, these are, I'm going to actually read the article instead of Twitter handles so I can provide more information. All right, going to wait for this to load. Wow, an outdoor reading event sounds so exciting. I'm very happy about this. Okay, Authors on the Street, a live indoor, excuse me, sorry, that was my mistake. Authors on the Street, a live in-person outdoor reading. So again, this is happening Sunday, June 13th from noon to 1 p.m. Pacific time at the Inner Sunset Flea Market, second Sundays, uh, which is happening, yeah, second Sundays, May through November 2021, which is on 10th Avenue in San Francisco, and we'll share a link to this on our site, which has the map. Uh, we've all enjoyed the Zoom events and crowd events, crowdcast events, uh, and Facebook Live events during the past year or so, but we also missed gathering in person to hear authors read their work. So we've partnered with the wonderful folks at the Inner Sunset Flea to have an honor to have an hour of spoken word featuring some of our favorite local wordsmiths, hosted by Charlie Jane Anders, with book sales by Green Apple Books on the Park, featuring um, uh, Shruti Swami, A House is a Body, uh, Annalie Nowitz, uh, Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age, Mike Chen, We Could Be Heroes, uh, Cheney Kwok, The Passenger, How a Travel Writer Learned to Love Cruises and Other Lies from a Sinking Ship, and uh, Josiah Luis Alderete, Alderete um, Baby Axolotus, and Old Pochos. Uh, bring your own boba. This event is totally free and RSVP is not required, but please RSVP so we know you're coming. 
and please, please buy some books from the lovely folks at Green Apple. Cool. All right. So we are going to, um, yeah, we'll share a link for this on our website. Again, that's June 13th. Lots of really exciting events coming up. It'll be great to see some people in person. All right. Next on the list. Then, yeah, we'll keep reading till one, and then we'll take a music break. Or maybe, well, this is a, we'll see. Okay. This is a thread from Adam H. Johnson. I do find a lot of info on Twitter. And uh, Adam's Twitter handle is at AdamJohnsonNYC. Quick thread on why the Walgreens closes 17 stores due to shoplifting narrative numerous outlets reported is extremely thin. Left out of all these articles is that in August 2019, Walgreens announced they were closing 200 stores over the next couple of years anyway. And that's definitely true here for San Francisco. I mean, there's a lot of surprising number of uh, fascists here in San Francisco. I don't know what other word to use to describe people who like hate unhoused folks and decide to use their platforms and time and energy to further hurt folks who are already, you know, struggling. But that's, I mean, that's kind of what it looks like. So people were just really upset about Walgreens being closed and they're blaming shoplifters. And I'm like, okay, first, uh, there's like so many things that are wrong with that. And then this article is going to get into that. But also, uh, a lot of people still to survive. And also it's like from a fucking Walgreens. Like, I think Walgreens is going to be okay. And like, you know, it's just, it's so barbaric that people will take the side of a corporation over their neighbors who need food to survive and feed their families. <sighs> like, isn't that kind of like the, like if someone has to steal something, don't you want them to steal from like a company that's like not, like it's not, hurt, it doesn't hurt people. Like, I don't get it. All right. Okay. So they have a, <laughs> in here, as I, before I even started, uh, they have like a screenshot from the Chronicle, the SF Chronicle, gross. Um, out of control, organized crime drives SF shoplifting, closing 17 Walgreens in five years. Excuse me, get me my, my hanky, I'm so sad. Um, and then US, USA Today, Walgreens plans to close 200 US stores according to new SEC filing. And that was from August 6th, 2019. And then the one from the Chronicle that I read is from May of 2021. So they're already planning to, cl to close, but now they just want to like blame poor people, which is, I guess, the American way, I suppose. All right. So this is a thread by Citations Needed by um, at Citations Pod is the, th is the Twitter handle. And then I'm going to follow them right now. Oh, it's a podcast on the media, power PR, and the history of bullshit. Um, wow, that sounds great. All right. So let's go back here and read this thread. In this news brief, we break down a recent wave of sensationalist organized crime, shoplifting epidemic, and those are all in quotations, stories in national and Bay Area media, and how they fit into a resurgent tough-on-crime narrative. Okay, and this is with guest Fred Sherburn Zimmer. Oh, of Housing Rights SF. Great. And this is a SoundCloud episode. It's a little bit, let's see, let's listen to a little bit of this, because uh, I could use, my voice could use a rest, and I could... Uh, stand to learn something right now so uh let's play a little bit of this so again this is a news brief organized crime shoplifting epidemic all that putting that we do stuff. these news briefs in between our regularly scheduled episodes when there is something that we really feel like we need to discuss uh, of course you could follow the show on twitter at citations pod facebook citations needed and if you are not already consider becoming a supporter of our show through patreon.com slash citations needed podcast with me, Mishrazi and Adam Johnson, all your support 
through Patreon is so incredibly appreciated. We are 100% listener funded. And so what you are able to give goes. And uh, I'll today, use this moment to also say Adam, you should also donate this show. Patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. From the West Coast, namely the Bay Area. We've been hearing, Adam, that San Francisco has an out-of-control shoplifting epidemic. Yeah, so the New York Times ran a headline on May 22nd with the headline, quote, San Francisco shoplifting epidemic, mm -hmm. in which they detailed the out-of-control rise of shoplifting in San Francisco. With the subhead, the mundane crime of shoplifting has spun out of control in San Francisco, forcing some chains to close their stores. And the article would go on with some anecdotal tale about the person writing the article being in San Francisco in 2016 at a Walgreens in North Beach watching people just grab beef jerky and walk out. And then he said he went to a Safeway next door and, quote, for some reason I saw a man stuffing three bottles of wine into his backpack and walking casually towards the exit. Mm -hmm. It all sort of paints an impression that shoplifting in San Francisco is just sort of casually done. The article written by Thomas Fuller in the Times goes on to say this, that in the time since he moved to San Francisco, quote, the shoplifting epidemic in San Francisco has only worsened. And the article continues this way. At a Board of Supervisors hearing last week, representatives from Walgreens said that thefts at its stores in San Francisco were four times the chain's national average and that it had closed 17 stores, largely because the scale of thefts had made business untenable. The article continues to say this. The retail executives and police officers emphasized the role of organized crime in the thefts, and they told the supervisors that Proposition 47, the 2014 ballot measure that reclassified nonviolent thefts as misdemeanors if the stolen goods are worth less than $950, had emboldened thieves. Now, this article is like a number of other articles that have been seen across local San Francisco media. So, for instance, the San Francisco Chronicle on May 13th of 2021 ran this headline, quote, out of control, organized crime drives San Francisco shoplifting spike, closing 17 Walgreens in five years. And in that article, it says this, that, quote, although the majority of CVS shoplifting incidents in the city are by opportunists, says Brendan Duggan, director of organized retail crime and corporate investigations at CVS, Professional crime accounts for 85% of the company's dollar losses. He said San Francisco is one of the epicenters of organized retail crime, pointing to an $8 million state bust in the Bay Area last year. Yeah, so here we have his claim that 85% of the shoplifting comes from organized crime. Now, this is a very convenient thing that cops always say. We th During looting of cities last summer, they said that it was mostly driven by organized crime who were sort of giving Black Lives Matter a bad name. This is something you hear all the time. The reason they say it's organized crime is, is that it's a way of marketing carceral crackdown to liberals. Right. Because if you're going after the Gambino family, it seems less unseemly than going after Jean Valjean stealing your loaf of bread. And so we wanted to kind of interrogate this narrative because it seemed a little dubious to me on its face, especially because there's three major contexts here that one needs to know in the context of San Francisco which is just a general effort to defund the police city council level and among activists that carries over from the George Floyd protests of last summer. That's one. Number two is Proposition 47, which passed in 2014, which, as Nima mentioned, lowered the threshold of when something becomes a, a felony from $450 to $950. There has been an effort to repeal that or to, quote, unquote, reform that several times. There was a ballot initiative in 2018, 2020. There will no doubt be one in 2022. And that police organizations and retail stores 
via the Chamber of Commerce and other retail lobbying groups have been pushing to overturn Proposition 47 for a long time. The third is the quote-unquote reform DA, Chase Boudin, who has been subject to pretty much every – there's an effort to recall him. Yeah. He's been subject to a ton of bad media coverage, largely driven by capital and, and sort of pro-carceral forces, including increasingly liberal pro-carceral forces, who do the I care about Black Lives Matter but routine before they promote more policing. So that's the sort of broad context for the story and why we have to talk about it. Undergirding this is the fact that San Francisco and the Bay Area in general is one of, if not the most unequal – metro areas in the united states it has the most wealthy people living there than any other city in the country and rent is exorbitant buying the cost of housing is exorbitant and even just a few years ago even before the covid pandemic and the subsequent economic crisis the number of san francisco residents living in their cars had already increased by 45 percent because of just how painful living expenses are in the city and so you know undergirding all of these other issues is the fact that you have this area that is the most expensive U.S. city to raise a family in, that basically you need $150,000 minimum just to get by. And so we're told that this increasing inequality compounded by the doubling and sometimes tripling of hunger and housing insecurity caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, we're being told that this is actually not the reason there's a shoplifting epidemic, that it's actually separate from that, that it's actually a band of organized crime. Yeah. Now, I looked it up. There's a case in October 2020 about an organized crime ring targeting CVS, Walgreens, and Target that allegedly stole $8 million worth of items, $1 million worth of medication, over the, like sort of over-the-counter medication they stole. Then they repackaged it and sold it on this guy's website. This is the only kind of evidence I've seen of an organized crime ring. It's certainly not enough to make up 85%, and of course that was disrupted October of 2020, so that obviously can't be the case now. There's supposedly some other organized crime rings. That 85% number, I asked the, the journalist at the San Francisco Chronicle a series of questions. I asked her where that 85% number came from. Mm -hmm. I didn't have an answer. And there's been a ton of reporting about the connection between the rise of shoplifting with the COVID-19 recession. The Washington Post reported in December of last year in an article headlined, quote, feeling to survive more Americans are shoplifting food as aid runs out during the pandemic. Retailers, police departments, and loss prevention researchers are reporting an uptick in theft of necessities like food and hygiene products. The article is going to say, with Americans being advised to brace for a difficult winter among skyrocketing coronavirus infection rates and the economic recovery stalled, the near-term outlook is grim. An estimated 54 million Americans will struggle with hunger this year, a 45% increase from 2019, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, with food aid programs like SNAP and WIC being reduced and other federal assistance on the brink of expiration. Food banks and food pantries are being inundated, reporting hours-long waits and lines that stretch to the thousands. We've seen these viral videos food bank lines being really long, of course, Nima. Now, we are told, though, in all these articles in the San Francisco Chronicle and New York Times, that is, in fact, not COVID or pandemic or poverty-related or inequality-related. It is, in fact, organized crime. Retail lobbyists and law enforcement, they know what's going on. So there's a problem, though, with the basic premise of these Walgreens stores closing, because one of the lines they're using is that they're having to close these drug stores. This has been an article written by CBS News, NBC News, Local NBC News, San Francisco Gate, San Francisco Chronicle, both of which are owned by Hearst, that this is, a, this is affecting seniors' ability to get medication. The real victims are the people in the communities who then won't be able to get their drugs. Right. So there's a problem with this narrative, right, which is – so this is the San Francisco Chronicle headline. The headline read, out of control, organized crime drives San Francisco shoplifting spike, closing 17 Walgreens in five years. Now, there's a couple things wrong with this narrative, which after only a few hours of research sort of reveal themselves, which is that 
in the time frame we were given, and several articles talked about 10 Walgreens closing in the last few years. San Francisco Chronicle says 17 in the last five years. Mm-hmm. Is that why did only two, if this alleged shoplifting epidemic, as New York Times calls it, if it's affecting both Walgreens and CVS equally, why did CVS only close two stores, which they announced they were going to close because they were, quote, underperforming in March of 2019? They closed 46 stores throughout the country, two of them in San Francisco. So they didn't claim when they announced this that it was anything related to shoplifting, and they closed CVSs in Springfield, Missouri, and you know, in the middle of nowhere. So it would logically follow that if they're going to close 17 Walgreens due to the spiking shoplifting, they would also close some comparable amount of CVSs, but they didn't. They haven't closed any CVSs in 2020 or 2021. And so there's another problem with this, which is that in August of 2019, Walgreens announced they were closing 200 stores nationwide. Fast Company wrote, quote, Walgreens is closing 200 stores across America. That's 3% of its entire stores. But the company isn't revealing which ones. Even CBS San Francisco, which has demagogued these Walgreens closures, reported on this in August of 2019. Quote, in June, Walgreens reported a 25% decline in quarterly net income and predicted that annual earnings would be roughly flat for the prior year. Walgreens has been hit by challenges, including reimbursement cuts and lower price increases for branded drugs. There are more than 600 Walgreens in California and more than 60 located in San Francisco. Walgreens has already shut down 195 stores so far this year. So Walgreens was planning on shutting down stores, and they shut down 17 stores. Another article, in the, I guess it depends how you define San Francisco. Another article in the San Francisco Chronicle said 70. They said 17 of 70. There's 53 left, okay? So I did a little comparative analysis because I said, well, if Walgreens is planning on closing stores in urban areas, why don't we see how many they closed in New York City? So during the same roughly two-year time frame, Walgreens closed 70 out of 247 stores in New York City, which is roughly 28% of the Walgreens stores, which is more than the 24%, 17 out of 70, that they closed in San Francisco. So they actually closed way more in New York. And then I said, well, holy shit, there must be a crime shoplifting epidemic in New York and spent many, many hours trying to find evidence of this shoplifting spree in New York. And you'll be shocked to learn there was none. So what seems obvious to me is that Walgreens was planning on closing these stores anyway because they were consolidating their footprint in urban areas to save money and to reduce on real estate and labor costs. And that – so they closed these stores anyway. And I'm, this may have been expedited somewhat by COVID. It probably was. It certainly was in, in New York. But then they go around and say, oh, no, it's the shoplifting. It's shrinkage due to shoplifting. Now, so either two things are happening here. They're lying about the motive for closing the stores because they want to push back against Proposition 47 – Case of Bodine and the police reform movement, or there is a shoplifting epidemic in New York no one's telling us about. Right. Now, meanwhile, Walgreens and CVS both have been making a lot of money. So Walgreens itself is a nearly $140 billion a year enterprise. CVS, a nearly $270 billion a year enterprise. And because they house drugstores, because they have pharmacies, they are also now retailers of COVID-19 vaccines, right? And so as a result, just in the past six months, there's been a rise in stock price for Walgreens by over 40%. Meanwhile, CVS's stock has risen over 32% in the last six months and nearly 40% in the past year alone. These retailers, the model of their business is also based on absorbing some percentage of defective merchandise, lost merchandise, and stolen merchandise. 
they clearly are not hurting so much that they are needing to like close these doors. Because of course the narrative is that if they're closing these doors anyway, or let's say they're closing them because of increased rent or real estate costs, or they just want to consolidate, cut back on labor because they want or you know may get involved in an IPO or merger, whatever it is. A skeptical journalist would say, well, maybe they have an ulterior motive. Walgreens doesn't disclose their political donations, but CVS donate the largest donation that they've made in California is to the California Chamber of Commerce, who actively lobbies against Proposition 47 for obvious reasons, because it's a huge they believe it's a huge vector of shrinkage for them, right? It costs them a lot of money. I think any reporters reporting these this alleged epidemic of shoplifting by some kind of shoplifting gang, sort of I guess one of those sort of Walker, Texas Ranger gangs that kind of gets together in the middle of some sad warehouse and decides they're gonna they're gonna do this, that there needs to be some skepticism about that. And well, where's the evidence? And to the extent to which there is an uptick in shoplifting, maybe it's largely driven by the obvious the fact that the fucking economy, the bottom fell out of the economy and people were there was twenty minute long waits, two hour, three hour long waits at food lines throughout the country for people who didn't qualify for the UI extension, which was uh, you know, millions of people for undocumented people, et cetera. That this would be the cause. But these pieces, and there's dozens of them, are just press releases. And we didn't have time to do a full, robust analysis of all the crime wave media in San Francisco. This is just you know, 1% of it, because it's nonstop. Yeah, exactly. And I, actually, I was talking to uh, Steven Renderos of Media Justice, who is out in Oakland. And he actually, I think, put it really well when he said that the current media coverage of the shoplifting surge really kind of gave him 90s super predator vibes, right? That, like, the type of terrible journalism that emerged during the war on drugs in the 1990s and that obviously we've seen since we talk about a lot on citations needed but this idea that even if you can point to certain crimes right certain theft certain metrics increasing the media coverage is actually geared toward one solution well yeah but let's look at the, the statistics here so we're going to read directly from the fbi and san francisco data set and it shows that part one property crime in San Francisco is down 15% since 2020, 22% since 2019, down 29% since 2018, and down 35% since 2017. It depends on which one you're looking at. So crime in general in San Francisco, since uh, Jason Bodine took over, in 2021 relative to 2020, crime decreased 23%. So far year to date as of May 16th, 2021, relative to year to date mm -hmm. 2020, crime is down. 14% this year, rape is down 27%, robbery is down 17%, assault is about even now. Burglary, motor vehicle theft, and arson are up 2011 and 24% respectively. But other crimes during 2020 during the pandemic, like robbery uh, and assault, were down 22 to 14%, and uh, human trafficking was down 54%, and um, larceny theft was down 40%. So crime fluctuates. With crime trends, you can always sort of find the statistics that meet your criteria. The, rea the objective reality is that overall crime is down in the last two years. That is an objective fact. Now, certain crimes are up. Certain crimes are down. You can sort of pick and choose which ones you sort of want to look at, but you can go to the San Francisco Police Department's own crime data. But don't worry, the San Francisco Chronicle has a way around this inconvenient fact. So if you read the article, it has a somewhat interesting sentence, which I think is worth looking at, which is where the the data contradicts the right. premise of the article. Which is really pushing for more police, more funding, pro-carceral solutions. So it's hand-waved away, and then, and then the writer moves on. So here's a paragraph from the San Francisco Chronicle article by Mallory Munch on May 13th, 20, 
21, third in paragraph five is, quote, last year burglaries increased in most San Francisco neighborhoods. Shoplifting decreased under pandemic lockdown and dropped slightly the year before, but incidents are often underreported and have become more violent and brazen policing. So shoplifting is actually down uh, this year. It is down the previous year from the prior year. And then the writer says, oh, no, no, but the incidents are underreported. Well, okay, then how do I know they weren't underreported before? And how do I know, like, what does that mean? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what to do with that information. And they're more violent and brazen police say. Now, of course, there is violence. There is, you can go to any of these anti-Prop 47 groups, anti-Chase groups, and they'll show you videos of people attacking CVS employees. And these tech billionaires like David Sachs, you know, their hearts bleed for employees of CVS and Walgreens. And of course, that's unfortunate. The district attorney's office is taking organized crime or any kind of threat seriously as, you know, that seems totally reasonable. But there's this weird thing where to the extent we have evidence of an increase in shoplifting, there's a very concentrated media effort in this one specific area of creating a narrative where it's so bad drugstores are closing, right? This is sort of a concrete way you measure it. 17 Walgreens closed because of shoplifting. And then when you actually look it up and you find out, well, they were closing those stores anyway, it kind of takes the wind out of the sails a little bit. And it's like, well, okay. And it's down, but it's sort of, it's not really down. And supposedly it's not reporting. And, and there's this effort to sort of cement a narrative. And then when the data contradicts the narrative, the reporter says, oh, well, that doesn't matter anyway. You're like, well, it's probably just underreported. Yeah. And it's like, well, if it's underreported, then, you know, what is knowable? <laughs> right. <laughs> because basically the entire gist of so many of these articles, as we mentioned before, but I actually think it bears repeating, is there's the framework that shoplifters, big shoplifting organized crime rates are destroying the neighborhood pharmacy and therefore elderly folks in the Bay Area can no longer get their, you know, vital medicine. People can't get their kind of daily household items because the mom and pop pharmacy on the corner, the Walgreens or the CVS, are closing down. And who's to blame? The shoplifters, right? And so, therefore, what is the solution? More police, more security, closing the retail stores and blaming the people in the community, say, who don't have jobs, who can't afford to feed their families, who, even if they're not stealing directly to put food on the table, they're stealing to then resell and get money. Yeah, because one of the things that's important to note here, as we've talked about, like, when people say organized crime, one of the things I think they're kind of doing here to juke these numbers, although I still don't think even with this it goes anywhere near 85%, is there will be a, like a loose band of homeless people who will go in, steal razors, medicine, and then fence them for you know substance, right. substances which shall not be named. And this is their idea of organized crime. We're not talking about the Yakuza here. I mean this is but, right. If, this is organized in only the most liberal sense of the word. If like fucking you know, Tony Soprano is sticking up delivery trucks – on the highway, that's not going to cut. Like maybe it's not a particularly good ROI to steal from CVS. I mean, the one network they unpacked or whatever, they were stealing drugs and reselling them. But you'd have to have a connection to an OTC drug reseller for this to make any sense at any scale. And so it's like clearly, if you're going to steal, you're going to steal from high-end fashion stores. You're going to steal. I mean, it's just not a great ROI. What do you steal? Beef jerky and and Time Magazine. It's not a. It doesn't really make a ton of sense that this would be a huge hotspot for organized crime. So, but again, the idea that 85% comes, which is sort of basically 100%, right? It kind of sounds true, is that it's clearly marketing to liberals, which is what they're doing. They're marketing carceral solutions to liberals. They're marketing the reform or the abolishment of Prop 47. They're marketing more severe DAs when the election comes up. They're marketing 
against these police reform and police abolition and police defunding efforts is that if you say it's organized crime, you make it more palatable to liberals because nobody wants to be Inspector Javert, right? You don't want to go after the person stealing bread to eat, even though we have, again, the report in the Washington Post, we have a ton of other research that's been done that shows that when the economy tanked in 2020, shoplifting increased proportionate to that. But we can't have that narrative because then you have to address the underlying social issues. And that makes it unseemly to sort of unleash the cops on poor people. So what we do is we hype up this idea of organized crime and it's spurious at best. There's been basically one example in California with respect to just CVS. Now, obviously, organized crime, they've had organized crime reasons still from other things, right? Amazon, credit cards, whatever. But specifically, primarily driven by pharmaceutical, by, by pharmacies, there's really only been one since the time frame we're talking about here. And that just pos that can't possibly account for 85% of the thefts. It just doesn't make sense. Right. And yet we hear that, you know, over five years, 17 stores closed. Let's get a newsworthy hook for the reason why and it's not because of capital downsizing no it's not that it is rather shoplifting and to be clear when they announced they were closing 200 stores they didn't mention anything about shrinkage or, or shoplifting they said they were just underperforming so like and again if there was a, if it was driven which is what the headline says basically entirely by i think the new york times does this bullshit weasel word of largely by but if it was largely or entirely by shrinkage, then there would have been a comparable amount of closures on the side of CVS, and there wasn't, because Walgreens had different economic motives for doing it, because they were losing money and they had too much fucking overhead. So anyway. To discuss this more, we are now going to be joined by Fred Sherburn Zimmer, director of the Housing Rights Committee of San Francisco. He'll join us in just a moment. Stay with us. All right. Very informative. I'm going to take a bit of a music break here, and then we'll be back in a bit, so please do stay tuned and again um i was sharing this podcast um on the topic of organized quote unquote organized crime and that's from citations needed um, which you can follow on twitter at citations pod okay take a bit of a music break and we'll be back in a bit please do stay tuned
Hey everybody, welcome back. Uh, get myself back uh, here. I wanted to continue uh, sharing this podcast from Citations Needed and the music we sh- just played, uh, Run In With the Night by Lionel Richie. Before that, State House, It's a Man's World by U.S. Girls. And I thought I had paused this at the right spot, but I might um, not have. So uh, please bear with me as I... Chronicle article by Mallory Monch for Violet and Raisin Police Day. This is sort of a concrete... So many of these articles, as we mentioned about the Yakuza here, I mean, this is on poor people. So what we do is we hype up this idea of organized crime, brings it... Crime is driven by so-called... And food insecurity aren't the real issues. They claim that crime is driven by so-called... ...and why, and it's not because of capital downsizing... No, it's not that. It is rather shoplifting. And to be clear, when they announced they were closing 200 stories, they didn't mention anything about shrinkage or, or shoplifting. They said for an economic motives for doing it because they were losing money and they had too All much right. fucking overhead. So anyway. Fred Sherberg Zimmer. Fred, thank you so much for joining us today on Citations Needed. Thanks for having me. Detractors from reform insist that the uh, economic precarity on housing and food insecurity aren't the real issues. They claim that crime is driven by so-called organized crime, not economic needs. There's some anecdotal evidence that can be the case sometimes, but broadly speaking, we're kind of skeptical on the show. I want to begin by getting an activist perspective on the state of poverty and housing precarity within San Francisco since the beginning of COVID and how you feel maybe this relates to this so-called crime wave, although, again, some crimes are down, some crimes are up, but we'll sort of grant that there is a crime pickup. We begin by talking about the state of poverty and precarity and housing insecurity within San Francisco, just to kind of give our listeners some context here. To start with, San Francisco is a city of extremes. You have a lot of wealth in San Francisco, especially with the big upturn in the tech sector in the last 10 years. And you have very, very extreme poverty in um, housing insecurity, high levels of homelessness. And I think this is pretty well known. Once you hit COVID, everything like doubled down. And so you have whole sections of the city sitting empty, high-rise condos that either no one moved in or everyone left, or a lot of them were second homes or investment housing anyways. And at the same time, homelessness just started to get moved around during a horrible I mean, what we're all dealing with, that the biggest employer in San Francisco is hospitality, so hotels, restaurants, an entire industry that closed down. So we run a tenants' rights hotline. We have been getting between two and three times as many calls during the pandemic. Usually black people have no way to pay rent. And so we're seeing sometimes upwards of 300 calls a week of people who don't know whose landlords are harassing them to get out, that they're in massive debt. Sometimes they have COVID and can't go to work. Really extreme cases in a city that already had really extreme poverty. And this is borne out by both, I mean, I guess on your end, you're seeing this sort of human suffering. I want to take some time, not to be too exploitative here, but can we talk about some of the cases that you see? Like, what's a sort of common case? You don't have to, obviously, you don't have to name names. But what's a common case of someone who is seeing housing insecurity in San Francisco, because I think the way the media covers it is that there's this permanent homeless population that we can kind of dehumanize, and then there's the quote-unquote homeowner or every person who we're supposed to sort of center. And I want to talk about the kind of gray area. Where do you most commonly see this kind of transition from 
month to month covering rent to like, no, we're out on the streets. What does that look like? What's the racial makeup of that? What are the human stakes there? Well, first I want to start off with that San Francisco is a city that is almost 70% renters. And so that is the everyman in San Francisco. And that is a wide swath of San Francisco. And we have rent control. So a lot of people were really well protected before the pandemic if you already had decent housing. If you didn't, we're not allowed to have protections on the units. And so right now there's a huge campaign around low income and affordable housing where the average resident pays 70 or 80% of their income in housing. And that's big neighborhoods downtown that a lot of the calls we get are service workers, are new immigrants. The most common call would be from Latina mom who's lived in the U.S. for under 15 years, has children, who was working, it might even be two families to a household, and before the pandemic could barely make do and people were pretty overcrowded. And now when you can't work and you can't get benefits, what that means is that people are making the choice of feeding their family or paying rent. And often people are borrowing rent money from their families or going into massive debt. And some people owe months and months and months of rent debt. And landlords are calling or harassing them even though they're protected by the law. And a lot of people are moving in with family. And so into COVID, doubling up households again. And so that there isn't a room someone can go into if someone gets COVID. That there's already only one bathroom, only one bathroom on the floor. But we're also seeing a lot of elderly people who are on Social Security, but also worked part-time at a job because they couldn't afford rent alone, and they lost their part-time job, and now are afraid they're going to lose their housing that they've lived in for the last 30, 40 years. And that goes through all racial groups in San Francisco. Yeah, I think, you know, when we have been talking about the recent uptick in shoplifting and how it's being reported on what we've done and what you've so kind of helpfully laid out here is how petty crime, right? These low level thefts and especially the way they're reported on. So they're made to look really outsized and then if not part of a quote unquote organized crime ring, right? <laughs> but how that really does connect to precarity, poverty, people being without homes. And yet what we tend to hear is the perspective of say, the Silicon Valley Bay Area tech guy. The crime is on the rise and the property value is going down or whatever. But, you know, at the same time, those same voices are claiming that rampant homelessness, or at least housing precarity, can't really be the culprit. Because housing has been offered to unhoused people in San Francisco. And that, quote, 70% of the homeless have turned it down right? That it's this, they want to remain unhoused, right? Fred, can you kind of talk to us about this program in question that the kind of offering of housing and what efforts have been made during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic and also uh, that are still going on? So one, San Francisco actually does build a lot of affordable housing and does try to provide some housing. But when you're in a crisis as big as ours before the pandemic, there was never enough units for everyone who wanted them. And 
so I can think of an example of a friend of mine who lived across the street from a park and during COVID, there was a homeless encampment that set up. It was sort of like a side alley and um, the tents, they moved their tents all six feet from each other. And because there was this brief period of time that they weren't doing sweeps for once. And so it became a pretty stable community for the first three months of the pandemic and the neighbors would bring them things. And But one of the top questions that homeless advocates and anyone, like even when my people I knew would bring them toilet paper or whatnot, would be like, "Do you? I heard you can get into a hotel room right now. Do you know how to get into a hotel room? People didn't want to go to a shelter during COVID because you were likely to get COVID in a shelter. It's not safe at all. And so there were these semi-stable communities that set up, and then the city started sweeps again. And they sent police in. They confiscated people's tents. They threw them in dump trucks. And a bunch of the places on that block ended up getting broken into because there wasn't a stable set of people who kind of knew the community. During COVID, you can't go to a drug treatment program. You're probably not getting the mental health services you needed to get. If you were panhandling downtown as a tourist, you can't do that. The line for a food bank is four or five blocks long. I mean, people are really desperate right now. For Even housed people are really desperate right now, let alone homeless people. There's a group called Coalition on Homelessness in San Francisco, and they did a survey sort of before COVID and during COVID where they interviewed thousands of homeless people to come up with, they call it the compassionate alternate response team of what homeless people thought would help get them out of homelessness and clearly taking all of people's personal possessions and medicine in a tent and throwing it in a dumpster isn't really a particularly effective way to get people out of homelessness or to throw them in jail for a fine. San Francisco, the majority of the homeless population, the majority of the prison population is African-American in San Francisco. You also have a very high level of folks in jail who have mental health issues, and it's a waste of resources. Like, if policing solved this problem, it would be working. Well, I want to talk about that. So I, I know a lot of detractors, again, of the so-called police reform movement, Prop 47, and which we talked about at the top of the show in, in 2014, is really one of the primary motivating factors behind the kind of reaction to this so-called reform movement. And I want to talk briefly about this narrative that's trying to shape in the media, even among so-called liberal media, centrist media, that San Francisco is kind of a cautionary tale of the failures of liberalism, that it's not about social services, that San Francisco provides plenty of social services, plenty of homeless shelters. You hear, you hear this all the time, that it's actually that we need to sort of go back to this tough on crime narrative. And that is the current prevailing, I think that's fair to say, emerging even liberal consensus, supposed liberal consensus, that we actually do need to get rid of Prop 47. We need to get rid of these reform DAs. We need to start increasing penalties and putting people in jail. We're sort of going back to the 90s playbook and that San Francisco shows the limits of that. Obviously, a lot of bullshit because these supposed social services are not as glorious and as robust as their detractors make them out to be. But I want you to address that narrative because we, we want to kind of make sure we're steel manning here. Address that narrative, why you think it's not true, and, and maybe even feel free to sort of 
speculate as to the underlying forces pushing this narrative? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two parts of that. One is this sort of false narrative of San Francisco. San Francisco is capitalism on crack. The rich get to do whatever they want in San Francisco, and people make money hand over fist, and they don't care. And two dire consequences of a large part of the wider Bay Area community, including San Franciscans. So that's the first part of it, is that this, oh, our wonderful liberal city, whether it is Uber getting to do whatever they want, or whether it, you know, like, what programs we have is a desperate attempt of people's movements and trying desperately to get any social services for our communities in one of the richest cities in the world. But ultimately, if you let landlords displace thousands of people a year, you end up with mass homelessness. And on the issue of homelessness, I mean, so one of the things they claim, the head of CVS Security uncritically reported by numerous outlets claims that 85% of shoplifting is from organized criminal rings. There's evidence of pretty much one organized criminal ring. Some have speculated, and I'm being a bit weaselly here, forgive me, that when they say organized criminal rings, really what they're talking about is basically a loose confederation of homeless people who steal razors and medicine to dispense to other third parties in order to buy substance, which, of course, I think is not most people's version of organized crime. We imagine sort of Bond villain-like boardroom meetings, org charts, right? I want to talk a bit about, maybe I'm veering a little bit off your wheelhouse here, but I want to talk a bit about the issues of substance abuse, which do plague housing insecure people, the issue of social services, and what a carceral response, because obviously they're all calling for a carceral response. Right. I yeah. mean, they'll give you some liberal bullshit, like, well, maybe, no, but that's really what they're calling for. I want to talk about the issues of substance abuse and what a carceral response will or will not do to actually fix that problem. First, I want to sort of start with the fact that headlines of organized crime do great to sell newspapers for the Chronicle. But the question is whether there's actually any evidence of that. Most of these, there's been rumor that many of these drugstores have been going to close for a while. I mean, most of them are in neighborhoods during COVID that have high poverty, no tourism because of COVID, and had a lot of luxury housing, but is now sitting empty. So... I'm not surprised they're closing after COVID, and we have no shortages of drugstores in San Francisco. I mean, of Walgreens and CVS, they've basically driven every small one out in the city. But so that piece of it, but your real question was about drug use and addiction. And the question is, if we're really looking at addiction and what will help, like if people are committing crime because they're addicted to a substance, and I think there's probably lots of reasons people are committing crimes, and that might be one on, like of a list of them. Sure, yeah. I mean, people are also just stealing food a la Jean Valjean, right? Yeah. Or they're stealing razor blades or selling medication because they need food. They need food or rent. Right, right. I, yeah, I don't want yeah. over, to overplay it, but it is. I think it's probably fair to say that it's one of the factors. No, I think it's actually really important to talk about drug abuse. And this is not my primary organizing wheelhouse, but I don't see how putting people in the police system is going to actually help our local budget. So the question is, do we want to have three times as many people in jail, or do we actually want to stop crime? Or do we want to lower addiction rates? Because criminalization has no link to lowering crime. Yeah, there really does seem to be a like a correlation here, and you know we've talked about it a bit, between the 
1990s crime wave and then tough on crime backlash obviously the infamous crime bills that came out in the mid 90s and even language used right in politics and also of course the press stuff like super predators wiling out you know that kind of stuff and we're seeing it again as taking very real issues and yet having the solution always be fun more cops harsher longer sentences mandatory minimums there are always punitive and carceral solutions rather than humane solutions rather than solutions that organizers who are most proximate to these communities and the communities themselves are calling for right that it's this you know oh well let's ask silicon valley what they think should happen in san francisco as opposed to asking the people that are actually dealing with precarity you know as you do your work at the housing rights committee of san francisco what do you see as being some of the most effective ways that really deny the uh, false efficacy of say carceral solutions of over policing what is the work that you are currently doing and you know tell us about some of the positives i mean we work in a coalition and part of the reason we actually actively work on cutting the police budget in san francisco is that we expect police officers to be a weird superhero that if your sister gets addicted to pills her doctor gave her and now has an addiction. You don't want to throw her in jail. You want to like be able to easily find her a program. If someone you care about is having a mental health breakdown, you want a mental health worker to be able to come and help and quick. And the same thing is just sort of like, it's this always the same budget pot. So they're always saying they don't have enough money for after school programs. They're always saying they don't have enough money for real housing. And we really believe that every San Franciscan, just like everyone, should be able to have decent housing. And that keeping people in their homes for us is the best way to stop homelessness. And we also need to get people who are homeless into homes. But the amount of trauma people go being on the streets and the biggest growing group of homeless in San Francisco is seniors. That more than half of seniors in San Francisco make under $20,000 a year. This is a city where the average income is 100000 But the average senior makes under twenty. Before we let you go, can you tell us a bit about what you are up to, how people might be able to support your work, the work of uh, Housing Rights Committee, and what maybe some kind of key campaigns that folks can be paying attention to. What else is going on in the city that people might be able to get involved in? Yeah, a few other things. Like I think right now one of the important things is not to lift the eviction moratorium in California or in San Francisco. That if people have no income to pay rent come July, they shouldn't be thrown out of their houses. We need to talk about debt forgiveness post-COVID. And ultimately, beyond San Francisco and in San Francisco ourselves, we need to expand things like real rent control, that people's rent shouldn't be going up all the time, that rents across the board shouldn't be, like, our wages don't go up with inflation. Rent shouldn't go up more than inflation every year. And these are real solutions we can make to keep people in their houses, to keep rents down. And then ultimately, we need 
to ultimately decide what keeps our communities safe. And these are real conversations we all need to have in our communities. What are the real problems and what will keep us safe? Extra police officers walking down the street, I don't think are the solution to the everyday problems we're seeing that most San Franciscans are seeing as the problems that they ID. And that includes homelessness. With like San Francisco is one of the richest cities in the world and we have a responsibility to take care of each other. And as communities, we need to organize to force the powers that be to do that because people are making a lot of money off of us. And the only way that we make this real change is by organizing together in our buildings, in our neighborhoods, on our blocks, with all the other tenants of the landlord we rent from, around not only things like housing issues, but other issues. And whether it's San Francisco or whether some of like our other partners in um, Right to the City, Homes for All, who are also doing amazing work in other cities around the country, we need to really fight for housing justice because this whole media storm around whether some Walgreens are closing or whether there's an uptick in a point of an extreme poverty and shoplifting is a distraction and I think is actually a purposeful response to communities like San Francisco saying to police to stop killing them and to make real reforms and I think it's a straw man, frankly. Well, I think that wraps it up very, very nicely. Can't thank you enough. We've been speaking with Fred Sherburn Zimmer, director of the Housing Rights Committee of San Francisco. You can check them out at hrcsf.org. Fred, thank you again so much for joining us today on Citations Needed. Thank you all. All right. That was super informative, and uh, I learned quite a bit, and folks talking about it um yeah really appreciate that so again that was uh citations needed podcast you can find them on soundcloud as well as twitter and we also provided a link to this um, episode on our page at weeklyrev.org so yeah fairly informative very very informative so thanks so much and uh that's gonna wrap us up here as we are approaching the two o'clock hour i'm gonna play one more song and didn't quite get to everything, um, but I did feel like it was really um, helpful to play that that show. I know that there's a, a lot of other folks are also having a a bit of a brain fog during uh, this COVID time, where some days I feel a little bit more clear-headed than others, and uh, feels kind of unusual being here, uh, having this platform to share information and the truth, and also sometimes. Uh, not quite knowing what to say or how to say it. So I appreciate the folks who um, are putting out educational work. And uh, yeah, if you do like the show, and there's a lot to it. We've been doing the show now for eight years, and there's a lot of previous episodes folks can check out. Please go to weeklyrev.org. Please consider donating to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash weeklyrev. Any amount is helpful, and big thanks to the folks who do donate on a monthly basis. And uh, yeah, just going to play some music and uh, we'll be back um, next week. I think I might uh, be recording in advance. But yeah, thanks again. Thanks. Keep doing what you're doing. And here's some uh, Stevie Wonder. And we'll be back. Uh, we'll be back soon. Stopping anyone who steals less than $950.
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. 
Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of. <laughs> you uh, with, with my 